Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of Girls Gone Canon. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor, on Twitter and on Tumblr. And you can also find me at Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire History on Podbean and Twitter. And hello, I'm Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl on the Maester Monthly podcast, which talks about the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, where I'm also Glass Table Girl. <laughs> on the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me The King Breaker and the Queen's Hand. An episode of Barry. Oh, that's better. That's better than what I had, I guess. We <laughs> should have worked on that. You did a really good um you did a really good um hungry like the wolf earlier <laughs> thanks it was uh, about the time of the wolf which i am always hungry like the wolf at the time of the wolf you know what i'm saying yeah i do yeah i do every i time. do okay every time. yeah this is our third episode of barry our third out of four episodes well out of five i should say i'm really excited for this episode i think we have a lot of good thoughts in here? Yeah, there's a lot of juice in this episode. Lots of juicy stuff. Yeah. Lots of hot takes. There's, I mean, things are heating up in Marine, so we must. Things are heating up in Marine. <laughs> Literally. They're getting okay. a little fiery over there. Oh, hey. <laughs> Alright. So we also had some really great feedback and responses to previous episodes from folks. We did. We got a great email from Taylor, who wrote to us. Yeah, Taylor says, Hey ladies, love your podcast. Sorry, I'm behind. Sorry, we're behind too. I just <laughs> finished the Eddard 12 slash 13 episode, and I wanted to add something. You discussed briefly the Valencar prophecy and Jamie's status as Cersei's younger brother. This chapter is the best evidence for it, in my opinion. I think it's pretty good, too. Oh, yeah. You talked about Jamie holding Cersei's heel and how that relates to the Achilles myth, but it is also a blatant call-out to the biblical Jacob and Esau story, where Jacob comes into the world literally holding Esau's heel. It's supposed to symbolize slash foreshadow Jacob's betrayal of Esau and his scheminess. Don't know why, that's just a biblical thing. Um, yeah. While Jacob doesn't exactly kill Esau, he strips him of his inheritance and makes him angry and is forced into exile. So we might see some version where Jamie must betray Cersei and is himself forced into exile, probably for kinslaying. Anyway, just thought it was interesting. Thanks for reading, and thank you for listening, Taylor. I love that. That is a great little anecdote to go along with that i love how much mythos and just how much story george puts into this and different things from fiction that uh work with it it also reminds me a bit of uh like how jacob and rachel and leah uh jacob stories are like there's some really good weird crap in there and jacob rachel okay. and leah remind me of peter cat and liza almost yeah it also very much reminds me of like Aegon the Conqueror and Visenya and Rhaenys. Jacob is like definitely a scheming bad character usually in the Bible. Yet yeah, he's also he's like he's a trickster hero, you know. Even in the Bible, like that archetype. Mm -hmm. 
I've never like flushed this out and I remember playing around with the idea before and I'm just going to touch on it but whatever um, of like Jacob and Isao and that idea of like kind of sneakily taking someone's birthright um, I think that rears its head a lot throughout the series and I don't know, it, we might see, like, some shades with it, maybe, like, with John and Rob's will, or maybe we'll see it with, like, Fagon or something. I, I'm not really sure how it's, if it's gonna, like, play out exactly like that per se, but it is, it is a uh, something that A Song of Ice and Fire definitely plays with. Yeah, it's a strong theme in the story. Next week, we have our first guest. Uh, we've been teasing it steadily for the last couple episodes very lightly humored and jokingly because he's one of our good buddies but we are gonna have jeff uh brendan b fish from not a cast and our aswaf and of course from wars and politics of aswaf wapwaf <laughs> wapwaf it's almost like is that french what is that <laughs> but yeah he's joining us next week for our barristan outro he agreed it was very hard we had to pay him thousands of dollars no i'm just kidding he literally like was so excited oh my god i can't wait <laughs> yeah he's not even like on a podcast you know it's just like not a cast yeah it's not even a cast yeah i'm really excited he also you know has written extensively on barristan and you know we've referred to his post about how the situation in Marine with Barristan very much mirrors Ned's in King's Landing, and we're going to talk about that a few times throughout today. And also, he and Emmett did a yeah that episode about Barristan for Not a Cast. Um, really great episode. Yeah, we're also having his daughter come on. Yeah, she's actually the guest of honor. Yeah, she is. <laughs> And of course, after next week, we will talk a little bit more at the end of this episode about what we're going to do with Barristan in the Winds of Winter, but we will be starting our next Point of View chapter very soon in the following weeks, and it is fire. It is lit. I am so excited to get into it. I think you guys are going to love it. Yeah, there's a lot of really hot takes to be had about it, you know? Yeah, very spicy in a way. Very spicy. So, jumping into what we have here... Uh, let's talk about what we missed in our lightning round since the last Barristan episode, starting off with the spurned suitor. Quentin's friends urge him to take Barristan's advice and get the fuck out of Dodge. I don't know what this phrase means. I've heard people say it. My parents are immigrants. Um, the choice <laughs> to stay is hard and riddled with tests. Like, oh, now we have to deal with the windblown that we betrayed. But to Quentin, it's better than heading home to his father empty-handed. So... Let's kill two birds with one stone, or perhaps deal with two dragons with one Quentin, and get the windblown to agree to help steal a dragon. Just trade the tattered Prince Pentos. No big deal. Yeah, I wonder how that's gonna turn out. Hmm. Probably not good. <laughs> yeah. The Griffin Reborn. Ugh, I'm so excited for a John Con chapter. So excited. We love our almost dead gay son. Yeah, no, he's got such an interesting storyline. I'm very excited for John Connington's chapters. After taking Griffin's roost, it's time to broad on old regrets about Stony Seth. John thinks about how he should have been more like Tywin and raised the town, and resolves to not make the same mistakes with Rhaegar's son. 
He sends a letter to Doran, informing him his nephew still lives, then goes to pick some scabs, I mean, uh, some grayscale. A few days later, Egan joins John, and they hatch a plan where the boy will lead the attack on Storm's End. The sacrifice. Everyone's hungering for a taste of blood. The Peasburys are eating people, while Asha would like nothing more than to slice Clayton Sugg's stupid head open. It is a stupid head. Stannis Baratheon orders the cannibals burned. Asha bonds with Justin Massey before a few unsuspected folks join their party. First, the Bravosi banker Tycho Nestoris. Then, the chapter ends on what is possibly one of the greatest moments in all the Saga of Ice and Fire history, which I cannot not quote. His lips skinned back in what might have been a grin. Half his teeth were gone, and half of those still left him were broken and splintered. Theon, he repeated. My name is Theon. You have to know your name. And of course, following that, such another influential and just groundbreaking chapter from, of course, Victorian, which begins with Benny Hill music. <laughs> <laughs> in which Victorian captures some fleets, and Mikoro basically describes the Elder Wand when talking about Dragonbinder. So, yeah, that was the real solid good stuff from Victorian. Keep it up, buddy. The ugly little girl. A girl must learn to take a new face, see new horrible memories of another ugly little girl's life. Long gone. This girl has a target and with the help of a little gold coin, takes the target out. With a successful assassination in her back pocket, Arya Stark is headed to Isambaro. In Cersei 2, we reach the Walk of Shame. Cersei finally faces some comeuppance for a few of her actions. Then in Tyrion 12, our poor child Penny is sad about Pretty Pig and Crunch and mm -hmm. everything else is just background. And by that I mean Tyrion makes a deal with Brownlin Plum and literally tries to slap sense into Penny, which is completely unnecessary. Leave her alone. And then he realizes that the second sons must once more turn cloak if they're to be on the winning side of this war. With that, we reach the Kingbreaker. In the Kingbreaker, a knight sworn only to duty and obedience has his first taste of treason. He seeks to depose the Queen's King for the crime of poison and for being the Harpy. Barristan meets with Skahaz once more, and it opens with this fantastic phrase, a pale shadow and a dark, which just goes to show that Barristan and Skahaz are skulking and that they're up to no good. They run through their plan together to seize the city. They plan to have it ruled by council until Daenerys returns, and they name the plan Grolio in reference to the slain admiral. It's an interesting strategy on the part of Skahaz and his men, uh, what they're doing by reminding everyone of Grolio and using his name as a code name is turning Meereen into that powder keg, really feeding that emotional rallying point, and turning Grolio into a figurehead. That was not an intended pun. <laughs> it's kind of like, instead of Valiant Ned's precious little girl, it's precious Grolio's little head, or Valiant Grolio's... Yeah. Precious little head. I don't know. I had yeah. something there. But it, it is a very strong rallying point, like you said. Skahaz tells Barristan he was present in the room when Bloodbeard and the Slaver Lords killed Rolio. He claims that had Hisdar commanded, he and the Brazen Beasts would have killed the Yunkish. Going back to this idea of 
you know, Barristan very much being like Ned, but in Meereen. The way that Skahaz just sort of tells Barristan what his Dar's intent was uh, feels very similar to the way that Littlefinger weaves a completely cohesive, perhaps even too perfect narrative about the Lannisters, the poison, and the cat's boss. Skahaz says that the Yunkish would have never dared to do this in front of Daenerys, and that the horror shown on his Dar's face in reaction to Grolio's head was in fact fake, and that it was just to give him a reason to kill the dragons before Volantis's fleet arrives. Get a job, Skahaz. <laughs> <laughs> Truly the little finger, I know. It's interesting because there are very slight holes in Skahaz's narrative that he's weaving, just like little fingers, just like we see during the tourney, Littlefinger and Renly going back and forth and Renly pretty much revealing that Littlefinger was actually wrong about how Tyrion not wouldn't bet on Jamie, uh, that that would never happen. So, I mean, it's these little things that Ned and Barristan both miss, these little cues, these little moments. Yeah. Barristan remembers another time he did something so bold and daring. It was the Hour of the Wolf at Duskendale. The Hour of the Wolf. The blackest part of night when all the world's asleep. He had first heard those words from Tywin Lannister outside the walls of Duskendale. He gave me a day to bring out Ares. Unless I returned with the king by the dawn of the following day, he would take the town with steel and fire, he told me. It was the hour of the wolf when I went in, and the hour of the wolf when we emerged. Grey Worm and the Unsullied will close and bar the gates at first light. This line connects us to the past and it sets us up for the rest of this chapter and the following chapter to ping pong back and forth between Bearston's history um, and all of his various regrets. Yes, the Barristan nostalgia hours, as we call them. <laughs> yes, but like, you know how nostalgia is usually super happy? They're actually, these ones are sad. Yeah, it's like very sad. It's sad. It's so, it's so sad. Grandpa. It is. So sad. The same line about the Hour of the Wolf appears in Quentin's final chapter, that it was the Hour of the Wolf when mm -hmm. he went to the dragons, and also in Barristan 1 in The Winds of Winter, which we will be covering uh, in the next following weeks. Also, it makes me think, especially with the previous working title of what was going to be the last book and how this was supposed to like feed into it, darkness and stuff, like, is it... A time for wolves. It's very thematic through this whole book. I mean, you get a lot mm -hmm. of time for wolves in A Dance with Dragons, especially as the dragons are becoming more prominent in the story with Daenerys and eventually Jon and, of course, Aegon and the actual dragons. Barristan wants to return the remaining hostages from the Yunkai and command them to remove their armies. From Marine. He only wants to declare war if they should refuse, but of course, Skahaz doesn't like this idea. He's like, no, let's just kill the hostages. Uh, Barristan feels, though, that if it comes to it, he can defeat his Dar's guards because he deems the pit fighters uh, not as skilled and not as experienced uh, in a real fight as a Knight of the King's Guard is. I think this is really an interesting highlight George uh, pulls out. Barristan keeps thinking, knights have all a pit fighter has, and then some. Chivalry. Chivalry will save them when, 
Just like Ned Stark's honor, chivalry may just be what kills Barristan. Oh, absolutely. And it blinds him because chivalry has a lot of different things. And, you know, we talked about this in that dunk, that drunken egg episode that we did long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not just, like, the good things. There's parts of it that are about that fealty. Barristan wants to save some of these remaining hostages like Jogo, Hero, and Dario, but the Shave Pate warns against it, thinking that it's too dangerous. The Shave Pate thinks Dario is better off dead in the long run and that they should just leave him be. Barristan wants to retain the peace that Her Grace had writ and does not want to be the one to break it, which is just a bit reminiscent of the Lords on the Trident when Gregor is running rampant through the Riverlands. We see it exercised again in Barry's honor later in the chapter when he goes to his Dar's chamber. He fucking breaks it. Yeah, he totally breaks it. He breaks it. <laughs> Barristan privately agrees uh, with Shavepate about Dario, although he knows that Danny is in love with Dario. And this is going to be a running theme throughout this chapter. This sort of patronizing paternalism on the part of Barristan, where he thinks that he can just make that choice for Danny, like for her, that she would be better off without Dario, as though Danny herself isn't aware of the toll that it takes and isn't making the rest of the right choices anyway. And I do think there is a double standard with the idea that Danny having a side piece is a quote-unquote wrong choice because there are a lot of kings, as we've seen in the series, and men who are allowed these concubines and mistresses, and these are overlooked. Whereas, I mean, like, Danny, though. Right, like, it's obviously bullshit because good dick Dario, dude, fuck a double standard. Let the girl fuck. Let her fuck. Yeah, he doesn't deserve to die just because, like, just because they were, like, banging, you know? Yeah, dude, I wouldn't want to condemn anyone with my pussy either. Yeah. It's a bummer. Bearson don't know shit about love. Bearson then thinks on some of these other, like, poor love choices that other Targaryens, I guess, have made in the past. Prince Rhaegar loved his lady Lyanna, and thousands died for it. Damon Blackfire loved the first Daenerys, and rose in rebellion when denied her. Bittersteel and Bloodraven both loved Shira Seastar and the Seven Kingdoms' blood. The Prince of Dragonflies loved Jenny of Oldstones so much he cast aside a crown, and Westeros paid, Westeros paid the bride price in corpses. All three of the sons of the fifth Aegon had wed for love in defiance of their father's wishes, and because that unlikely monarch had followed his heart when he chose his queen, he allowed his sons to have their way, making bitter enemies when he might have made fast friends. Treason and turmoil followed as night follows day, ending at Summerhall in sorcery, fire, and grief. The way that Barristan describes how Danny feels about Dario and what these quote-unquote tragic loves meant for the whelm, like, Barristan gives these four examples from history, yet when he talks about the consequences, he's talking about it from the perspective of songs. Like, there was a complete political underside to all of these wars and it told a different story of war that isn't just about like star-crossed love because that's not what it was like the realm didn't bleed because Rhaegar loved Lyanna but because of Ares tyranny like Rhaegar and Lyanna the rebellion actually was started 
the first act of war was John Aaron calling his banners because Ares was just out here executing his lords without any proper trial breaking the feudal contract. Like, that didn't have, like, this didn't have to happen, you know? Uh, Damon Blackfire rose in rebellion, I, I think it was like eight years after the first Daenerys was wed to Marin Martell, and casting in, which I think cast doubts on that claim that the rebellion was for love. Yeah, eight years later. Yeah, like, oh, I mean, you you want to start a rebellion? Do it, like, within a year, you know? Yeah, for love. Yeah, put your back into it, Damon Blackfire. All right. Yeah, Daenerys one don't want no scrub. Yeah. Bitter Steel and Bloodraven, Barristan says, fought uh, over Shira Seastar, but, like, uh, again... There was this whole rebellion. There was an actual treasonous like thing that was going on, which I think is a pretty decent cause for the two to fight. Uh, and then the Prince of Dragonflies and Jenny of Old Stones is like the only one that kind of, in my opinion, holds any any bit of water. More like holds any bit of wildfire. Yeah, it's it's the only thing that I think is close to it because of Lionel Baratheon. But like, I don't know. There was yeah. a lot of um, there was a lot of other political stuff going on there too, as the way Egg was running some things was kind of disgruntling some of the lords. Yeah, he changed up tradition a little too much. Yeah, which Egg's a good guy, good ideas, bad execution. Yeah, execution a all right, and I mean it's not as though duty actually bodes any better. Like, mirroring for duty as opposed to love. When you look at the way Ares treated Rayella, which was a match only made out of prophecy, I, I think that it shows us that Barristan lives as much in these songs as anyone, and he fails to see those political grumblings that led to each of these wars and just projects all of this onto Daenerys, when that's not what's going on here at all. There's like a war, not because of Dario, but because it's a very complex political situation. Oh yeah, absolutely. He doesn't see the nuance of it all. He sees in black and white. And it's something that we will definitely touch on in our next episode. Shakespeare Thrones said some really great things about his generation that I really can't wait to talk about. Yeah, we just want to save it. Yeah, saving we want ourselves. good stuff to come. Yeah, we're saving ourselves for the outro. <laughs> okay. Skahaz mentions they can take revenge and retaliation into their own hands if the Yunkai hurt their hostages, but Barristan once more refuses the idea, reinforcing the save the children mentality. This was set up in the previous chapter by Barristan expressing affection for them, just like the spoiled blood oranges plopping down in the water gardens. Plop, plop, plop. These kids are gonna die, dude. Just like Barristan. He's gonna die. I don't want them to. Let them live. Let them live. <laughs> Grandpa, come on. Skahaz hasn't forgotten what the point of hostages are, just as the hostages likely have not forgotten now that they are likely aware of the political climate around them. You can see some parallels here with the Griffin Reborn, John Cunningham's chapter preceding this, as both men muse on their regrets and Tywin Lannister's actions. Just as Ned's storyline is kind of a shadow over the entire story, so too is Tywin Lannister. 
an anti-shadow and a shadow, if you will, a pale light and a shadow, just like we read at the very start of this chapter with Barristan and Skahaz. Oh, hi. Very good. Very good. Very good? Very good. Oh, have we not been saying that this whole time? I have so many regrets now, too. I, I didn't say it on purpose because I knew you'd run with it. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> so, I'm so predictable. Skahaz says that the plan is going to be ready by nightfall. So, Barrison makes rounds in the pyramids and he's just training his boys all day. He thinks about some of them are going to be ready to become knights soon. But if only Barrison would last a little longer. Um, I feel like in the way that he describes each of these boys individually, he's learning so much from them. Um, as much from them as they are from him. He's like, oh, whips aren't useful. Then he's like, oh, actually this guy's like got great ideas with them. They're opening his horizons. And then there are six of the boys that are ready to become maybe knights or fighters, which of course, together with Bearson, makes seven of them. I feel like subconsciously, Bearson's always trying to make little groups of seven with himself. He also keeps talking about how he's still Lord Commander, like, every chapter. He talks about how he's a Lord Commander, so he totally is like, I'm their dad. Yeah, I'm their dad. Uh, These are my seven now. Like, he does it with the brazen beast a little later. He's just always like, oh, look at that. There's six guys, plus me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thurston, I can't believe you can count. You're doing great, sweetheart. Yeah. He wrestles with his honor. Like, how can he knight these boys when he's doing something just so dishonorable and conspiring against his queen's husband? What if they were knighted by a knight who dishonors himself greatly just before his death? Which, okay, first off, even Barristan thinks he's gonna die, so jot that down. Uh, yeah. They deserve better, Sir Barristan decided. Better a long life as a squire than a short one as a soiled knight. But to reverse this, what about a long one as a soiled knight? Did he not hear Rayella being raped over and over again? Did he not watch Eris's lust for wildfire build? Did he not stand aside while countless innocent people were hurt? Like, did he? Did he? Did he? Is there gold in the village, Sir Barrison? Is there? No? Yeah. Preach. Preach. And of course, again, conspiring against his queen's husband, you either die a hero, Barristan, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Bearston lectures these nightlings about honor, uh, hoping that they someday understand what it means to be honorable. Bearston warns Missande to stay in the Queen's chapters, but uh, won't tell her why, even though she's like, but what if I hear, like... It's like, nah. Which... Just give us the Masande chapters. We deserve it. Give it to us. He reflects on his failures and finds himself stuck on one haunting memory. Ashara Dane. I've never heard of her. Take it. Take it, Chloe. Do it. Rhaegar had chosen Lyanna Stark of Winterfell. Barristan Selmy would have made a different choice. Not the queen, who was not present, nor Elia of Dorne, though she was good and gentle. Had she been chosen, much war and woe might have been avoided. His choice would have been a young maiden not long at court, one of Elia's companions, though, compared to Ashara Dane, the Dornish princess was a kitchen drab. Even after all these years, Sir Barristan could still recall Ashara's smile, the sound of her laughter, 
he had only to close his eyes to see her with her long, dark hair tumbling about her shoulders and those haunting purple eyes. Daenerys has the same eyes. Sometimes, when the queen looked at him, he felt as if he were looking at Ashara's daughter. But Ashara's daughter had been stillborn, and his fair lady had thrown herself from a tower soon after, mad with grief for the child she had lost, and perhaps for the man who had dishonored her at Harrenhal as well. She died never knowing that Sir Barrison had loved her. How could she? He was a knight of the King's Guard, sworn to celibacy. No good could have come from telling her his feelings. No good came from silence, either. If I had unhorsed Rhaegar and crowned Ashara Queen of Love and Beauty, might she have looked to me instead of Stark? No. There's a lot going on here that we gotta unpack. This is like the the segment, the, the section of a chapter that's given the fandom so many theories just out of like these four paragraphs. There's so many theories on Ashara and Daenerys and Daenerys and Barrison's kid. And I don't know, just like friggin' all these theories that are wrong. They're all wrong, Eliana. They're all wrong. All of them. So... All of them. The great debate begins. Like, ugh, I don't even... Everyone's just so wrong, I don't even want to talk about this. But a few things to unpack here that I do want to note. The language surrounding this is very interesting. Haunting purple eyes. Ashara's eyes are only described as haunting by two people out of the three references to them in the story. Barristan and Catelyn, who feel immense guilt about her character. Uh, the only other reference is, of course, from Mira, who tells the story through her dad's lens, through Helen Reed's lens, and that Ashara had laughing purple eyes. This gives us confirmation, though, of Ashara's looks, which were, of course, dark, long hair and violet eyes, which would be the perfect scapegoat in case the seed wasn't so strong for a certain baby we know, or if purple overpowered gray, they don't know how a Stargaryen baby would come out. There's really never been one, of course. And this information all comes out of left field for everyone. We've been told from the very first book, uh, Ashara's stillborn child, that's brand new news for us as a reader. Ned Dane tells us in Arya's chapter in A Storm of Swords, chapter 8 of her chapters, that his aunt was in love with Ned and her heart was broken, which he hears from his aunt Illyria, who would have been born around the time of the rebellion, where Cersei claims Ned knocked Ashara up and came back for the baby. That's like a weird move. That's definitely a Cersei move. Yeah, it's very Cersei, like, hearing gossip move and, like, trying to get at him. The man that dishonored her is completely separate from look to Stark in this section of text, and Barristan does not ever connect Ned Stark with dishonor in his thoughts. In fact, he protects Ned's name and legacy to Daenerys. And with no mention of Brandon in his chapters at all, I think it very unlikely that Stark knocked Ashara up at Harrenhal. I don't think it was a Stark at all. If anything, she looked to a Stark for something. Hmm. And finally, of course, this thought process is almost an exact replica of something we've read in The Discarded Night, just with a different person and slightly different context. This is what we're talking about when we talk about how Barrison doesn't quite respect the women and their choices in his life. Prince Quentin was listening intently, at least. That one is his father's son. Short and stocky, plain-faced. He seemed a decent lad. Sober, sensible, dutiful, but not the sort to make a young girl's heart beat faster. And Daenerys Targaryen, whatever else she might be, was still a young girl, as she herself would claim when it pleased her to play the innocent. Like all good queens, she put her people first, else she would never have wed his Darzo Lorak. 
but the girl in her still yearned for poetry, passion, and laughter. She wants fire, and Dorn sent her mud. You can make a poultice out of mud to cool a fever. You can plant seeds in mud and grow a crop to feed your children. Mud would nourish you, where fire would only consume you, but fools and children and young girls would choose fire every time. This ideology that Barrison has adopted that all girls want fire and could never want mud is very toxic thinking in his mind. Oh, definitely. Like, I don't know. I, there's, like, not much to say about it other than, like, this isn't true. I'm just going to throw this out there. Who's the one? Who's, who, are the, who are the people who are choosing fire right now in the story? Just saying. Anyways. I don't know a single young girl in the story choosing fire. Yeah, actually, actually, amongst like our POVs, like our young Sansa's definitely not doing that right now. She's all like, mm, pretty face, bad personality. Like she's very cautious about that. Arya, Arya's like not even like on that page right now. Asha, Asha's busy with Carl, wanting to eat his peach. You know what I mean? No, well, and Catelyn, you know, she was willing to do her duty and she of course fell in love with ned over time and she chose mud she chose mud and i mean like liza that girl definitely chose mud that girl chose mud that wasn't even mud that was like yeah. dust <laughs> that girl chose shit poor liza she d- yeah she is sad though that bitch is fucked up and ashara dean also chose mud good luck bye Seriously chooses fire, I guess. Um, she chooses violence. She chooses violence. She chooses, she chooses violas. Also, the other people. Anyways. It's young men. Young men who are choosing fire in the story. And also old men. Barristan's choosing fire. Anyways, as the night progresses, Barristan bathes and armors himself. He meets with these brazen beasts who have donned the masks of insects. And I'm not really going to go into this much, but in Not A Cast, in their Barrison episode, they do a good quick breakdown of this, basically about how these masks are heralding, you know, that poisoning that happened to the locust, but maybe it's also mocking Barrison by shoving it in his face that he has the wrong guy. Oh yeah, I love that. I, I, love- I didn't really think about it. I was like, oh yes, locust. <laughs> Right, but that is brilliant. Barristan goes to confront his dar in his chambers. Brazen beasts allow him in, with questions, of course. Sir Barristan found them distasteful, though no doubt they were meant to be arousing. The sooner we are gone from this place, the better. Uh, <laughs> <really>. <laughs> okay. I might get a boner if I stay oh, no. here. Barrison then tries to get the truth out of his dar. Are you in league with the harpy? Are you the harpy? And are you the one who tried to kill Daenerys? Which I think kind of feels reminiscent of what? Ned confronting Cersei uh, in the Godswood. Yeah. Like I said up yeah. there, yeah. And as you pointed out, actually, in the in that episode, when Ned is talking to Cersei... You know, Cersei kind of ends up accidentally confessing to a bunch of things that she didn't do or wasn't a part of, like John Aaron's murder. Uh, she fesses up to some other things, like, you know, sleeping with her brother. But, you know, I think this could hearken to some of maybe Hisdar's innocence in some parts. Like, 
not poisoning Daenerys. Yeah. Yeah. But still being pretty sucky overall. Oh, yeah. Like, he might not be the harpy, but he's, like, definitely. Yeah, he's, like, still a tiny bit complicit. Yeah. I mean, Hisar denies some of these accusations. They're not very convincing, but also, like, what, it's the middle of the night. And you're just gonna roll up in here, dude. In my house? Yeah. <laughs> in my house. In my chamber? Bearston then draws his sword, and his dark calls for his guard. And, of course, he calls for Kraz when, when Barristan asks, Tell me, give me the name of the man who's the harpy. His dark calls for Kraz, which, you know, because I have nothing better to do. Let's make a tinfoil that Kraz is the harpy oh because his dark says his name when Barristan asks for the harpy. Oh, yeah, to why? Uh, because I can. Because we can. Kraz refuses to surrender to Barristan, and Barristan's armor gives him an advantage. Kraz crumples to the ground, killed quickly by Barry. And I do want to talk about Barristan's affinity for his armor and what we hear in his story. We hear constantly in A Song of Ice and Fire that knights wearing armor have an advantage, superior to fighters of the pit who have nothing but their wild aggression and pit training on their side. When Barristan goes, I bet you any money he will not be wearing his armor. George keeps noting armor in his chapters and noting the differences between and keeps noting how it saved Barristan's ass. Also, Jorah of Mormont, another another yeah. similarity between these two. Yeah, and I think you're onto something there, and it's definitely true, this emphasis on armor, and it creates this really strong contrast with some other capable fighters in this series who don't necessarily wear as much armor, like the Kranig men, who wear light leather, or like strong Belwas, who doesn't fight, you know, with... I guess, honor by Barristan's standards, and or he doesn't fight with honor, and he in fact allows his opponents to cut him once before he kills them. Not only am I just staring at you, but also the Cranach man do wear bronze scales, to be fair. That's the only one. We're pretty far into this episode, and it's the only one I've made so far. Okay, I'll give you one. You get the one. It's gonna be two. All right. Oh my god. Then Hisdar begs for his life, and Barristan tells him that he plans on imprisoning him until Daenerys returns. And of course, like we noted, if we're keeping with our King's Landing comparison, this scene reads just like Ned going to Cersei, having her admit to everything and thinking he's gotten one over on her. Which, of course, just like Ned, Barristan has gotten nothing over Hisdar. In fact, the scenes only warned Hisdar in time if the shave paint hadn't already been in cahoots with him, and help put his plan into action, whether it's saving his own ass or going ahead and signaling to people outside of Marine to attack, etc. And also, there are so many people who saw this happen. Yeah, it was not discreet at all. Like this cupbearer who comes in and informs them that Reznok wants to see his darn now, but you can't. <laughs> Barristan is surprised that this cupbearer arrived uh, and that he's telling them that Reznak is at the door because he and Skahaz had planned to take Reznak into their custody. And he asks why Reznak has come, which, of course, the cupbearer answers. The dragons, Viserion and Rhaegal, have been let out of their chains. Rip. Everything in this chapter is literally just like Skahaz was trying to get one over Barristan. Like, he's literally going to die. Yeah. His chivalry and his armor are not going to save him when he dies. He's going to die. 
I mean, death does come for us all. You know, Valor Morgulis. Oh my god. Let's just but, move on to it. Let's just keep going. We have one chapter yeah. left. Uh, before we get to the Queen's Hand, we have two chapters between. The first chapter between Kingbreaker and Queen's Hand is the Dragon Tamer. Oh. Oh? Oh. That's it. That's the oh. summary. Then we have John 13. He never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. So, like, another summary we could use here is betrayal. 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 I, I mean, I guess as much as a dragon can betray someone they were never sworn to. Who's a good dragon? Yeah, that was a good plan, but not. This is fine. We're fine. And now we get to the queen's hand. Pearson finds himself setting the sun's sun to rest and performing other dissatisfactory jobs, such as being the hand of the queen. Tasked with imprisoned Dornishmen, Jerus Drinkwater and Archibald Ironwood, and with accepting the Windblown's offer, the Yunkish refuse Barristans, and attacks begin on Marine. The rains are coming down hard in Marine dampening the fires that Viserion and Rhaegal are spewing around the city, which of course reminds me of a quote from Eddard Nine. The rain had driven everyone under their roofs. It beat down on Ned's head, warm as blood and relentless as old gilts. Fat drops of water ran down his face. I was totally thinking the same thing when I was reading this, of like how Ned's later chapters talk about the rain in King's Landing and how like all the stones turn to the color of blood. Also, you know, going back to some of the things we talked about last episode and how Zarzo and Doxos is like, oh, sometimes rain is like necessary and it's like slavery. And it's like, no, slavery and rain, they are still not the same. And slavery is still bad. Still bad. Still bad. Still bad. Just, you know, in case you forgot. Yeah. Thank God for Girls Gone Canon here to teach you about how slavery is bad. There's a surprising amount of people who are like really being apologists for it. Like, I get it, but it was bad. You're still yeah. a bad person for wanting it. Yeah. Like, just putting that out there. It was, it was, it was bad. <laughs> and it's better that there's not slavery. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, the dragons, also, they've disappeared. Uh, apparently, they, too, do not like the rain, just like, I don't know, Charmander. Oh, my God. They're like Charmeleons by now. True. True. Or Charizard, maybe even. They're, yeah. they're actually Charizard by now. They're V small Charizards. Yeah. He saw no signs of dragons, but he had not expected to. The dragons did not like the rain. A thin red slash marked the eastern horizon where the sun might soon appear. It reminded Selmy of the first blood welling from a wound. Often, even with a deep cut, the blood came before the pain. Which, of course, is like major foreshadowing, since he's going to die. Also, I just realized it kind of connected very well with uh, the way John's chapter just ended. Yeah, absolutely. Quentin Martell, sad boy, dies after three days of excruciating pain. Or did he? He did. Why would you put this in here? I don't know. What are you doing? Oh my god. (laughs) I thought thought better of you. That was your first mistake. You were my brother. I did tell you not to trust me. Oh my gosh. 
Good job, Chloe. <laughs> it's the reverse. Uh, him dying after three days, and to me, kind of feels like the reverse of some other famous stories. Like, of course, uh, Lady Stoneheart, who comes back after three days of being dead, or or Jesus, <laughs> where he comes back. I'm glad you're realizing life. what you just said. Some other famous stories, like Lady Stoneheart or Jesus. <laughs> okay, but Lady Stoneheart has definitely got some Jesus vibes, and the, like they have the stigmata, you know. And yeah, he's going for it. Like George is, that's what he's doing. But you know, instead Quentin just stays alive and dies after three days, which is like a big bummer. Yeah, I don't know if it's supposed to be like an anti-parallel there. Uh, I think it's just supposed to be he fucking dies because he got roasted by dragons, dude. Yeah. It's real sad. Out of respect, Ferriston has Quentin laid in Daenerys' bed because it's the only way he was ever going to be laid in her bed. <laughs> Got him. Got him. It's a bed of blood, if you will. Promise me, Barry. Right. Also, Barristan, like thinks, oh, she won't be mad that I ruined her bedding with like smoke and blood from this dead kid she didn't want to fuck. But here he is. Laying her in this bed, <laughs> ruining her bedding. I would be pissed. I'd come back. I'd be tired of shit. Rolling around with the Dothraki, having to fucking like become their leader and shit. Lighting shit on fire with Drogon. Yeah. Shitting like in the fucking for or the grassy plains, just shitting my asshole off me. You know, and I'd come back and all I'd fucking want is to lay in my bed. But some fucking little kid is laying in it and it's ruined. All because of Barristan. Like He's the worst. He better hope he's dead by the time she comes back because she, he won't be. But he better hope he is. Yeah. She's gonna be pissed. She did not cross all of Essos for this. Like I, after you know, just like a day at work, I come home and I'm like, right. I would be like, what? What is this? I'm just trying to pass out. You know, I'm just trying to take just a try- power nap, a queen nap, yeah, I'm just a Khaleesi nap. nap. Yeah, but you know, maybe she won't care after everything she's been through. She'll just be like, whatever. But let's just get our new bed, whatevs. Um, Masande is the only person who would tend to Quentin as he was suffering, and I mean, Masande was feeding Quentin milk of the poppy to help with his pains. Is Masande the Pycel figure of Mirin? Discuss. Eliana. Promise me, Barry. <laughs> like, I can't take you anywhere, even on this podcast. I know. The Blue Graces never responded to Barristan's requests, and the cupbearers refused to touch Quentin. Barristan suspects the Blue Graces died from the Pale Mare, and we haven't actually had the reveal of whether or not they did die from the Mare, but if they are still alive, it's likely they didn't come back because of the conspiracies against him from the Harpy. We don't see them with, pardon, we do see them actually in Daenerys 5 with the Green Grace when she comes to visit Daenerys, uh, but we haven't seen them since, so we don't really have word on it. Yeah, I agreed. Like, I wouldn't come back if I knew what happened to Zdarn as a Blue Grace, but also I wouldn't rule out them having contracted dysentery. Um, I don't blame the cupbearers for being like, uh, I'm not here even supposed to be here i don't want anything to do with this yeah absolutely i also very much like this line where bearson's talking about how terrible fire is and he says that half the hells are covered in fire and it gives me very dante's inferno vibes oh yeah um this yeah half the hells 
Then, of course, you know, the last circle of hell, the worst one, is reserved for treachery, which is what's going on here. And it's cold and full of ice, which, like, wait, what? what is this series? Get a job, George. Wait. <laughs> so, wait. Get a job, Skahas. Uh, yeah, Song of Ice and Hell's Fire. I mean, fire. Yeah. Yeah. Missande inquires what they will do with Quentin's body. And Barristan wants to send him back to Dorne out of respect, but he isn't really sure how he's going to do that yet. He tells Missande to get some rest, and she tells him to do the same because she notes that he does not sleep much. Barristan feels he doesn't need as much sleep as young knights, uh, because as Grandmaster Pycelle once told him, and that he fears closing his eyes at night. Turns out it's not just because of being older. He also feels that dying in his sleep would be an unworthy death for a knight of the King's Guard. Uh, he also notes that part of what keeps him awake at night is memories of the Trident, same as how Ned, of course, still suffers from PTSD because of his experiences in the Rebellion, but, you know, particularly his family and his sister, but whatevs. Barristan, of course, after all, as he says in his page in the White Book, that he was wounded by arrow, spear, and sword. And then he, you know, lost that prince that he was supposed to protect. So, the trident. Good times. Like, not the first time he's had that happen to him. Uh, That's true. Oh my god. He's been alive for so many years. So many. So many rings. God, no wonder he's all like, no, Danny can't be dead. <laughs> he wonders if Daenerys is alive. He worries she's dead, but he dismisses the thought, even though... It becomes harder and harder and harder to dismiss each time it comes up. Like, he's starting to get a little discouraged. Skahaz arrives at dawn to speak with Barristan, and he already knows Quentin died. He informs Barristan that the Green Grace, who he sent to negotiate the release of hostages with the Yunkai, has not returned to the city. An angry mob has assembled outside of the pyramid. This is fine. And they, yeah, they're ordering the release of his dar and death to the dragons. Um, and Boo. since his dar, Boo. kill the beast, kill. Uh, I don't remember the rest of how that song goes, other than kill the beast. Since his dar, I guess, has been taken arrest under arrest. The sons of the harpy have begun murdering once more. First they kill nine, then they kill three, and then twenty-nine, because why stick to multiples of three? Escalated quick enough. <laughs> Wild cards. Skahaz keeps insisting they kill a hostage, and Barristan continues to refuse. Barristan, like, must be really pissing them off with not doing exactly what they have planned for him right now, you know? That's true, but no, I agree. But also, like, I feel like there's a more subtle way, maybe eventually, you know, if you're trying to convince someone to kill a hostage, and this just isn't it. But I also think Barrison would never agree to it, which I think is very admirable. Like, I understand that, sure, that's the point of hostages, the threat of killing them, but good for you for sticking to your guns or your sword. Right, having ethics. Yeah. Which... Barristan gets to make that call because he is now the queen's hand and head of the council ruling the city. Skahaz tells him that the council is waiting and Barristan's all like, 
I never asked for this. I don't want to be the hand of the queen. Which, I don't know if you've heard that anywhere before, but sounds like some Ned Stark parallels to me. Never heard it. <laughs> he doesn't trust anyone else of the council to rule in Daenerys' stead, so Barristan assumes the position. I don't necessarily trust Barristan to rule either, for its worth. I think he's... I think it's good that he's not killing the hostages, though. Yeah, it is good. It's very honorable. Protecting the children. Nediston. <laughs> he just doesn't know how policy works. Nediston. There are 200 highborn gathered in the square, standing in the rain in their tokars and howling for audience. They want Hisdar free and me dead, and they want you to slay these dragons. Someone told them knights were good at that. Oh, there you go. Like I said earlier when I yeah. mentioned, what if? Maybe Barristan will have to go try to slay the dragons. Who knows? So, I mean, this is foreshadowing for something. I don't know what yet. Yeah. But this is something. This something. means something. I can just I can feel it. Barristan ignores a bunch of red flags from Skaz, who's still being like, yo, let's kill these hostages as a way to so- stop the killings of the harpy. This actually... I don't know that I, like... I don't know if that would work. Um, when they're describing how Barristan has done some redecorating, <laughs> they say that instead of these Dargan chairs, uh, instead, instead a large round table had been set up in the center of the hall, with tall chairs all around it where men might sit and talk as peers. Which, like, this is some very obvious, like, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, like, references. And I think it's meant to bring back these ideas of the chivalric romance, Hmm. which George is definitely building off of and trying to dismantle and respond to, especially as we watch, you know, our hero become just a man. Just a man in the end, absolutely. An old man who's going to die. We're all going to die. Grey Worm, the captains of the stalwart shields, Mother's men, free brothers, and strong Belwis are all there on the council. How could they do this? Okay, they talk about what strong Belwis looks like when he comes back, and like, he looks haggard, and just how could they do this to him? Give that, give him food. Oh my god, I can't. That's it for the cast. Oh my god. That's all I have. That's all I have. Oh my god, stop. Barristan tells the council of Quentin's death. The council wants to execute Quentin's companions for helping to release the dragons, which, damn, they are trying to pin these dragons on anyone else at this point, dude. Like, anyone. Yeah, like, definitely, they definitely played a hand in this, and it's a very little finger move. Oh yeah, absolutely. They've also closed the fighting pits in case it attracts uh, any of the dragons because of all the blood and noise. Marceline, Missandei's brother, argues it may attract Drogon and Daenerys back if they open the fighting pits. The pits are stocked with animals, which has kept Viserion and Rhaegal from eating more humans. Also, I just think that animals are probably more tasty than people anyway, though I hear we taste like tough sweet pork. 
Um, but I just think that <laughs> I've done a lot of reading about this. We are so bony though, and you're just like full of innards and consume things that I think are bad for us. And I just, I just think that sheep are are tastier than people. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking delicious. So fuck you, Eliana. I, I do not think that I am. Uh, cause you know, here I am eating fucking bugs. So. Oh my god. Yeah, uh, this was an outside conversation that just got brought in, but Eliana has eaten bugs before. Not locusts, but bugs. They're only mealworm. I only ate mealworms, and honestly, they just tasted like the smallest, lightest Cheeto puff of my life. I I have been trying to find locusts, though, and because the A Feast of Ice and Fire cookbook, fantastic, fantastic cookbook. Also, check them out in at the crossroads on Twitter and stuff. They do a lot of other recipes. They're fantastic. They have a recipe for honey spice locusts, and it sounds actually very good. No thanks. You can try them for me. Yeah, I'll eat most things. Yeah, it's just not for Chloe. Not for Chloe. It's fine. It's for Eliana. I'll eat eat them. Should Drogon return to Marine without Daenerys mounted on his back, the city would erupt in blood and flame. Of that, Sir Barristan had no doubt. Blood and Flame, JK, or Blood and Flame, aka Fire and Blood, which I think, sure, Drogon would bring it without Daenerys, but I think that Daenerys, you know, whatever headspace she's going to be in when she comes back, she's definitely going to bring it with Drogon as well. Yeah, I kind of feel like either way, there's going to be a lot of blood and destruction coming down when she comes back. Doesn't look so so cold, I guess not hot. <laughs> yeah, I was I like, know. I think it looks hot. Yeah, it's looking pretty hot. Looking pretty hot. Yeah. Thus far, both dragons seem to have a taste for mutton, returning to Dasnix whenever they grew hungry. This is just like my personal feelings, and I think that all of this reference to mutton and sheeps, either it's just uh, more world building because it feels to me like. It, Though, like, a setup for another Nettles-like situation. Uh, if you haven't read The Princess and the Queen, they talk about Nettles, and she lures sheep stealer with sheep, and then rides him. I've always been a fan of Brown Ben Plum being, I don't know, a Nettles-like dragon rider. The council agrees that Yunkai will not accept any offer to release the hostages except the death of the dragons. Barrison is asked what he will do when they refuse what he has to offer them, which he replies, fire and blood, which of course means fuck their shit up. Fire and blood, which of course means that the answer is coming out this fall in the new Targaryen history book. Ah, yes, the 12th book in the A Song of Ice and Fire series. Ah, yes. The 15th book. Mm, Yes, the, the third book. Oh my god. The trilogy, A Song of Ice and Fire. Oh my gosh. Rip. They launch into a very long discussion about battle plans, deployment of troops, targets to hit, and how to use the Unsullied. They agree if the slavers are destroyed, the sellsword companies may abandon them, and the dragons might participate in the battle. Though, they're dragons, so they'll probably just light shit on fire half-ass and not join sides. I mean, same. I wonder, though, if we're going to get some other daring young folk to step up and attempt to tame them, as Quentin did, and going back to the Princess and the Queen, as many of the people on Dragonstone did, 
there's an opportunity to be a dragon rider. It'd be interesting if they force Barristan to try to, to kill them and he tries to tame them and dies. I would like, I never thought of that until tonight. And I'm like, huh. I mean, either way, he's going to die, but it'd be interesting. Yeah, he's going to die. I just think it's going to be over the narrow sea. I know. Sweetheart. We're going to, we're going to talk. We're going to discourse. We're going to have a week. major like battle about it next week. Oh. It's going to be nuts. It's going to be an intense episode. Yeah. Me, you, and Jeff. All three of us are going to disagree. I love it. That's going to create some really great discussion. Yeah. Barry notes that if the dragons do show up, it could help to break the morale of the Yunkish armies. Uh, and then we get some discussion from Barristan on like how clever Miss Sunday is with all of her ideas uh, and just like give that girl a mic. Yeah, give her a medal and a mic. And a POV. Give her a chapter. We deserve it. The council adjourns. Barristan goes to the cells where the Dornish men are being held and informs them of Quentin's death. Garrus blames Daenerys, which causes a heated argument between Barry and him. Garrus says that Daenerys laughed at Quentin, which Barristan denies, which, true, Danny did not laugh at Quentin, but rather how Quentin's story mirrors that of the Frog Prince, which, come on, you guys know the story, and it's actually reinforced in Quentin's POV, the Spurned Suitor. The tattered prince turned back to Quentin. Could that be true? Surely not. What of your marriage pact? She laughed at him, said pretty Maris. Daenerys never laughed. The rest of Meereen might see him as an amusing curiosity, like the exiled summer islander King Robert used to keep at King's Landing, but the queen had always spoken to him gently. We came too late, said Quentin. This really shows how easy it is for the dragon queen to get this reputation as a cold, evil, dragon-flying woman, too. All it takes is one word from someone well-known to travel, and people believe the mythos. I'm just, like, so mad also at how Kyrus talks about her. He's like, your bitch of a queen had no use for him. Any man could see that. Like, just the disdain and the misogyny behind it. Like, oh, yeah. Quentin didn't think that about Daenerys. And he's the one who's, like, actually, like, being embarrassed here, dude. Like, yeah. he's the one who, you know, it was on him. And, like... Quentin understood that it was too little too late. Yeah, he did. And, like, I'm glad that Barristan, like, defends Danny and gets into this this argument with Jairus. And, I don't know, just, like, Jairus obviously just fears a woman with power. And Garrus has always been this beautiful male, highborn, so he's never had to play by the rules of respect for women. You know, having both of those oh. things, it's one thing for Quentin, who's kind of plain-faced and stocky and never... You know, nothing special. He's never grown up special. He's grown up being, you know, his father's son. But Garrus grew up being able to be that kind of douchebag. Yeah, and I think there's that. I think that's a really great point that, like, maybe Garrus, like, never had to actually get to know any women. Whereas, you know, Quentin, we see throughout his POVs, he's grown up around a lot of women. And he has quite a bit of respect for a lot of them and i mean how could you not be like arian as your sister and he talks about the ironwood girls too yeah quentin's a good boy and of course garris's story is probably what will reach doran's ears and by the time it does the choice will already have been made doran will be aligned with aegon 
You have like girls coming here and being like, "What he did, he did for love of Daenerys." Gareth Drinkwater insisted to prove himself worthy of her hand. The old knight had heard enough. What Quen what Prince Quentin did, he did for Dorne. Do you take me for some doting grandfather? A little. <laughs> I have spent my life around kings and queens and princes. Sunspear means to take up arms against the Iron Throne. No, do not trouble to deny it. Doran Martell is not a man to call his spears without hope of victory. Duty brought Prince Quentin here. Duty, honor, thirst for glory, never love. And that's why Quentin resigned to his fate of not marrying the Dragon Queen because he knew it was a flippin' like far cry if it would happen. You know, he knew it probably wouldn't happen. He knew it was too late. Garrus, in a running theme throughout the story, refuses to take responsibility for his actions and somehow blames Daenerys for their foolishness. Garrus claims that Quentin came for love and Barristan knows better. Quentin's dad wanted House Targaryen and dragons on his side before he divides before he defied the throne. And as you were saying, like, Quentin knew better too. He's like, it's fine if we don't marry her. We just need the dragons. And for Barristan to say all of these things aloud to Garrus, I think it's very interesting because he's finally voicing aloud that these stories of blood being the cost of love, as he was in the last chapter, regarding Rhaegar, Damon Blackfire, Bittersteel and Bloodraven, etc. All of those about, like, Rhaegar loved his Lady Lyanna and the realm blood for it. Like, those are just songs and stories and fantasies. As he points out here, like, they wanted the spears, they wanted, they wanted, like, the arms. Like, the truth is that ambition and treason and just plain old lust for war, it's not lust or love. And I wonder if Barristan is going to grow from that, if he's going to make the connection between what he's been thinking like in the previous chapter, those inconsistencies, now that he's involved himself and has seen that side of it. Well, the bad news is we only have a handful of chapters that we get in the next book, probably, so not sure how much growth we're going to experience, but we will find out. We'll definitely find out. We're gonna find out. And when he fire dies. In, in fire and blood. Stop. Volume 12. <laughs> the 26th book in the A Song of Ice and Fire trilogy. Archibald Ironwood tries to quiet drink, and Barrison makes an arrangement. He will find them travel back to Dorne on a ship and give them Quentin's bones, but they must stop at the windblown and tell the tattered prince that Pentos is his if they can free the hostages and protect them during the battle. Bless you, Archibald Ironwood. Um, but also, this whole situation is extremely significant setup. Like, Barristan should know better that Daenerys would never agree to sack Pentos because she has voiced that she, like, currently feels very indebted to Illyrio because of the dragon eggs. They were, to her, an extremely generous gift. So for Barrison to go ahead with this plan is directly in conflict with the Queen's wishes. So, I mean, like, where is your honor and obedience now? This reluctance on Danny's part, though, is likely going to change when Tyrion comes into the picture and informs her of the plot with Aegon. Okay. Of course, the speech we'll get from Daenerys in that moment when she confronts Illyrio, the showdown, will be absolutely magnificent. 
smoke billowing out of Drogon's nostrils, Targaryen banners billowing, Illyrio, whose stance is usually proud and fat, demeaned to a tiny speck in front of Daenerys and her dragons and her Dothraki horde. He sold her like cattle, he sold her claim like cattle, and meant for her to die among the horses and their lords, but Illyrio will have to meet the fire and blood for his actions. It's gonna be so good. It's gonna be a lot. I'm very excited for it. This is also going to have a lot of ramifications on the Westerosi part of the warfront and, you know, the Westerosi political situation, because while Sure, but the Golden Company, some contracts are written gold and some in blood. A sack of Pentos jeopardizes Aegon Fagon's campaign because there's not going to be a trust fund anymore to sponsor the armies or everything else. So GG Barry. Yeah, good going. The Green Grace returns, and of course, the Yunkai have refused Barristan's offer. She advises Barristan to free Hisdar if they want to keep the peace. And the way everyone's, like, making an uproar and they're like, free Hazar, I think it, sure, yes, Barristan is the Ned, but I think that in some ways this political situation is a little bit like the North calling their banners when Ned was imprisoned. Yeah, like Grolio's head. Oh, yes, Grolio's head. Precious Grolio's little head. Yeah, the Ned's little girl, also, also Ned's head. Yeah, off of Ned's head. Everyone's head. They will only accept the death of the dragons, and of course the Shavepate enters at this time and informs them six trebuchets have begun firing into Marine, but they aren't firing rocks, they're firing corpses. This whole like firing of corpses thing, and it just gives me very Blackwater vibes. Uh, The Battle of the Blackwater, you know, because they are throwing bodies over the wall and stuff. But also, there is that whole fiery aspect. The dragons and their own wild fire. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned last episode, Barristan's art turns to horror before his very eyes. Severed heads in the throne room, rotting corpses, the smell of flesh and smoke and blood throughout the city, disease. Barristan could close his eyes to the horrors in King's Landing and pretend they weren't happening. But in Marine, he's living his nightmare now. He can't escape it. Yep, in Marine, Barristan has to make choices and be the worst of what he saw or what he felt the King's Guard. And be the kind of knight that he thought the worst King's Guard are, the ones who get involved in politics. And I think Ned was a better politician, better suited for his role than Barristan. Uh, he's a little out of his depth in that turns out people were worse people than he thought, but I think he held the realm together much better than Barristan did. He had the right idea. He had better execution. Ha ha ha. Oh. I know, I'll go. Sorry. Dad, Dad, no! no. (laughs) But he, he didn't have the right tools available to him or the right support is his problem, and Barristan is even more alone than Ned was. He is, and you can see him trying to get support, but, I mean, it's hard. He has no friends, he can't speak most of the people's language. He's looking for support in the wrong places. He's like, you know, in that first chapter of his that we saw, he's like sad and alone and like eating his hungry man TV dinner by himself. It's, 
Oh, that's sad. Oh my god. <laughs> that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. He like is almost out of pizza rolls. Yeah. Okay, Tostitos pizza rolls are super good though. Mm, that sounds really good though. I know. Okay. Why are we always hungry when we do this? I don't know. Ooh, because it's the hour of the wolf. It's the hour you're of hungry the wolf. Like, you're hungry like the wolf. Oh my gosh, I quit this podcast. I quit. <laughs> well, thanks for sticking with us for the Kingbreaker and the Queen's Hand. I am glad you guys came back this week with us. Next week, our next episode is going to be Barristan and Outro, featuring someone we kind of like, Brendan B. Fish. Kinda. And then also, you know, of course, featuring someone we very much like, his daughter and his dog and his other daughter. Now they're not going to actually be on the cast, but... They might. They might. We'll also be figuring out our situation and releasing soon a Winds of Winter episode based around the Barristan chapters. Um, and that'll be... That'll also be coming out in the next few weeks. Uh, it's going to be... Are we... We're doing this one free for free at first, right? Like yeah, so this is going yeah. to be an episode that we are going to release for the public, but in the future, our Winds of Winter episodes will be a part of our $5 plus tier on Patreon, which we are going to be announcing our tiers in the following weeks for Patreon. Yeah, and we'll also be doing other episodes, not just the Winds of Winter ones, uh, other subjects as they strike our fancy. Chloe and I have a lot of thoughts on a lot of things. Yeah, we have like five pages full of episodes. Don't worry. We're already into it. We're so far in. Yeah. So, you know, keep in touch. Keep listening to our stuff. Stay tuned for all of these things. And you can do so easily by subscribing to us. Uh, you can find this on Podbean, of course, where all of this is hosted. You can find us on iTunes, on Google Play, on Acast, and on Stitcher. And of course, don't forget, if you want to send us an email, you can always write in at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Feel free to add us on Twitter, give us a follow, send us a DM or a tweet at girlsgonecanon. You can also leave us an iTunes review. Yes, Eliana loves them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced that you also like them. I don't like anything. Anyway, I've been Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl. You can find me always on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit and on the podcast about it, Maester Monthly. I've been Chloe. You can find me on Twitter at Lizenarbor. You can also find me on Tumblr under the same name, lizenarbor.tumblr.com, where I write meta analysis about the series. And of course, you can also listen to Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire History on Podbean. And we have a Twitter account also, which is Drunk Aswath. Thanks so much for listening in, you guys. Make sure to join us next week with Brendan B. Fish as we tackle the outro of Barristan and what his future looks like. Or doesn't, because he's going to die. Well, our Merkles, we're all going to die. Slowly. All grandpas must die. Oh, that's sad. <sighs> yeah, actually, though. Sorry. All right, this got, uh, never mind. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>